Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be studying the six doorways to discontentedness as well as doing meditation. Today's Wednesday when we normally do either breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or Buddhist chanting. And we occasionally kind of put in some additional content to really draw out in this group learning program the actual chapter that we're studying. Because each Sunday we start with a new chapter in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And the students who are studying in this program, either in our live sessions and our playback through Facebook, YouTube, our podcast, and all the other places that we distribute content to, the students are progressing in their learning and practice of Gautama Buddha's teachings and training the mind to this enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, where the mind has completely and entirely eliminated discontentedness from the mind. So this means that once someone attains enlightenment, they will no longer experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, fear, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all these discontent feelings and emotions, these unwelcomed feelings in the mind, we can actually eradicate them from the mind. Oftentimes in the human condition, we feel like sadness or anger or frustration is just part of what goes along with being human. And it does, as long as the mind is unenlightened. But you can awaken the mind on this path to enlightenment to this enlightened mental state where the mind no longer experiences those unwelcomed feelings and emotions. You can eradicate the mind of all of this discontentedness. And one of the topics that is really helpful to understand is the six doorways to discontentedness to help you understand how the mind takes in discontentedness and how it experiences discontentedness and how to kind of guard and protect against one becoming discontent. There's just a little bit of content about this in chapter four, which is the Four Noble Truths, Understanding the Worldview. That's the chapter that we started on Sunday and in the group learning program, we're progressing through this book and we really just started. So if this is the first time you've ever joined a session, either by Facebook, YouTube, 
podcast or wherever it is that you're taking in this content, you can actually still join into the program. This book is actually downloadable. It's completely free. And you can start reading at chapter four, if you like, because that's where we are this week. You can also start at the beginning and kind of catch up. It wouldn't be any issue to do so right now. But we're really starting to kind of dive into the teachings of the Buddha to understand why the mind is discontent. And we explained this on Sunday in the Four Noble Truths, explaining how this craving, this desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind wants something so badly and it craves, it desires, it longs, it has this strong eagerness and wanting something. And if it gets it, then the mind's happy. It's so pleased. But if it doesn't get it, or if it gets it and then it's taken away, the mind becomes angered or frustrated or irritated. This is the mind craving permanence and wanting to hold on to things permanently so that when someone experiences a scratch on their car, the mind becomes angry or frustrated because the mind is craving permanence for that car to look exactly that way all the time. It wasn't the scratch itself. It was the fact that the human being wanted this car to look the same. Or if we're in a relationship with a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a friend, and that relationship ends for some reason, or the person isn't meeting the expectations that you have placed for them, those expectations are this mental longing with a strong eagerness. And as soon as someone stops meeting your expectations, you say, oh, I don't love you anymore, or I don't want to be friends with you anymore. And this is how the mind functions in the unenlightened state. And when that relationship's over, there's oftentimes sadness or loneliness or boredom or anger. Even when people die in our life, oftentimes the mind becomes very sad, very sorrowful, lots of guilt or regret. There becomes very lonely sometimes if you're used to being around this person. And the human beings have a really hard time dealing with death. And it's because the mind isn't trained. The mind isn't trained to understand impermanence. The fact that things are constantly changing in life and there's no steady fixed state. So when someone dies, if the mind thinks that they're being punished or that God took them away from you or whatever it is, and the mind is wanting to hold on to this person permanently, then the mind's going to be very sad. It's going to be very frustrated, maybe angry, lonely, or bored when this person dies. And it can feel like the carpet is just taken out from under your feet, whether it's a partner, a parent, a child that passes away. It can feel like your feet are just literally being knocked out from under you when you experience death of a close person to you in the unenlightened state. But you can get to a point where you train the mind that you understand impermanence, that you understand that the only reason why death occurs is because there's birth. Because there's birth, there's going to be death, right? And you can look at death and you can process death in a very different way. It doesn't mean you're joyful and you're happy when people die, but your mind can stay peaceful, calm, serene, and content because you understand that the only reason why this person died 
is because they were born. They're human being. They can't last forever. And you can train the mind through lots of training with meditation and other teachings to not only eliminate the discontentedness that happens around death, but eliminate discontentedness entirely, where you no longer argue with other people, where you no longer have this desire to be right and proven right, where you no longer have this desire for everyone to understand you and do things your way, where you can exist in the world and peacefully coexist in the world with all beings, where you don't have this strong yearning, this longing, this strong eagerness to have things your way, where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter what happens around you. This is called being satisfied with what is. Whatever is happening, whatever is, being satisfied with that. And if there's something that needs to change, you will have the wisdom in which to modify the situation to make it better. But all while you're doing that, the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, seeing things very clearly, not making decisions out of anger, hostility, frustration, ego, things like this, because when your decisions in life come through these discontent feelings and emotions, your decisions aren't going to be as rational and as well thought out. The mind's essentially going to be reacting in a situation rather than responding to the situation. And you can train the mind to the point where you can respond to a situation. And when you respond, it means you've put some thought into it and you've applied some wisdom to make sure that your decisions and the decision-making that you're choosing to make are good, wholesome decisions that are leading to good, wholesome results. Whereas if in the unenlightened mind, you're making irrational decisions based on reactions, based on discontentedness, based on craving or anger or unknowing of true reality or frustration or irritation or loneliness, and you start making all these unwholesome decisions, it's going to lead to unwholesome results. So eliminating this discontentedness from the mind will allow the mind to be more focused, more concentrated. You'll have better memory. You'll have more clarity of thought and your decisions in life will just get better and better and better through this wisdom of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And that's what it means to become enlightened is you essentially eliminate this discontentedness and you've acquired this independent wisdom through verifying the Buddhist teachings. Not believing anything that I say, but learning the teachings, applying them in practice, and then see the wisdom that this is actually, in fact, the truth. And when you see the truth and you have this wisdom, now the mind will function in life much differently than it did prior. In the unenlightened state, when the mind didn't understand impermanence and that person close to you dies, then there's significant grief and sorrow and sadness because the mind is holding on and craving permanence. But as the mind gets trained and you understand impermanence and you eliminate more and more of this wanting to hold on where the mind craves for permanence, then the mind eliminates this strong eagerness, this longing, this grasping, this holding on, and the mind's more easily able to just let go 
then the mind can eliminate these discontent feelings that arise in the mind because you understand that it's unbeneficial for you to actually have this longing and this strong eagerness so you will learn to eradicate it from the mind because you'll see that the more and more longing and strong eagerness, the more craving, desire, attachment you have, the more discontentedness there's going to be in the mind. So today, because we already talked about the Four Noble Truths and we talked about that the mind is actually causing the discontentedness and you can eliminate it through training the mind on the Eightfold Path, which is what we're going to cover on Sunday. Today, what we're going to talk about is how does the mind actually become discontent in terms of these six doorways? We understand that it's craving, desire, attachment, that it's this mental longing with a strong eagerness. But there's actually these doorways where the mind takes in information and content. And then through it experiencing certain things through the sense organs, the mind then becomes discontent because of what it's observing through these six sense faculties. Okay, so we're going to talk about the six doorways and we're going to talk about how to guard them or how to protect your contentedness, right? How to guard these six doorways, helping you to eradicate discontentedness. Because it's one thing to understand that you're causing your own discontentedness and you can eliminate it through the Eightfold Path, which is what the Four Noble Truths is talking about. Essentially, the Four Noble Truths is saying, take responsibility for your own emotions and your own feelings. That's what the Four Noble Truths is talking about. It's one thing to understand it, but it's another thing to now apply that in practice and figure out, well, how do I truly eliminate this discontentedness on a day-by-day basis? Of course, breathing mindfulness meditation is the training that we're going to do today, and that's something that you should do every day to train the mind to let go. But there's also things that you can be doing in your daily life as discontentedness is arising or you're aware that discontentedness can potentially arise so that's where the six doorways of discontentedness come in is it helps teach you how the discontentedness is coming into the mind how to guard against that how to protect your contentedness so let's go into studying these six doorways of discontentedness by first sharing with you what is discontentedness. That's just kind of a recap to help you understand what is discontentedness. Then we'll actually explain what are the six doorways of discontentedness. So just as a recap from Sunday's talk, because there may be people joining us today that weren't participating in Sunday's talk, what is discontentedness? Discontentedness is three feelings. There's a painful feeling, a pleasant feeling, and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. These are the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, sometimes unwelcome thoughts in the mind that produce this feelings of discontentedness. This word discontent, discontented or discontentedness, it's a mental state that is comprised of one or more of these three feelings. Painful feelings are things like sadness or depression, anger, hatred, ill will, guilt, shame, 
fear, anxiety, stress, all of this are very painful for the human mind to experience and they're categorized as painful feelings, okay? You might put some other feelings in there as well and some of these feelings that I have in other places you might choose to put into painful feelings. How you categorize each individual feeling is totally up to you, but the fact is that the mind certainly experiences painful feelings and you've experienced that in your life. You've encountered situations where you've had painful feelings and you know what that feels like. And if you're joining us here today and you're listening to this content and you're studying the the path to enlightenment through the teachings of the Buddha, one of your goals is probably to eliminate these painful feelings. Who wants to live with these painful feelings? Once you realize that it's optional and that you don't need to live with painful feelings, yeah, let's get rid of those feelings, that sorrowfulness, that stress, that anxiety, that shame, the guilt, the fear, the depression. Who wants to live with this? Who wants to hold on to anger and hatred? Let's get rid of it, right? And that's what the Buddhist teachings are all about, is eliminating these painful feelings. Well, the second feeling that the mind experiences is called pleasant feelings. This is where the mind is feeling lots of pleasure. And I describe that as happiness or excitement, elation. And of course, there's others in here as well. Well, these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation, they are impermanent, right? Oftentimes, what we do in the unenlightened state before encountering these teachings is we chase after these pleasant feelings because the mind thinks as long as it has these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, life is so wonderful. But the problem with that pleasure seeking is that it's not permanent. And as soon as the conditions change where there is no more happiness or excitement or elation, the mind can oftentimes swing into the sadness or anger or guilt or shame or fear. So by allowing the mind to latch on to these pleasant feelings, you're essentially inviting the sadness, the guilt, the shame, the fear to come back into the mind because you're latching on to these pleasant feelings. So happiness, excitement, and elation, they're based on some kind of condition. You got a new car. You got a raise at work, a new income. You got a a promotion at work, a new title, a new job. You got a new boyfriend or girlfriend or a new house or a new pair of clothes or a new computer or a new phone. And then the mind is happy because of that condition or it's excited or it's elated. But the problem with that is that then those conditions change and now you lose the job and the mind becomes sad but the mind was latching on to this happiness of this job, expecting it to be permanent. And when it wasn't permanent and your company starts downsizing because of COVID-19 and you lose your job, now the mind goes to sadness and depression. And now you find it hard to live in this condition of sadness and depression and get yourself out of it and back into the workforce. And that can be very challenging for the mind. So by latching on to these pleasant feelings and expecting there to always be pleasant feelings, then you're inviting 
this sadness, depression, anger, guilt, shame, fear, anxiety, and stress back into the mind. So as you learn and practice these teachings, you will have joy. You will have nice, wholesome, helpful feelings and experiences. You will be very joyful, but it won't be based on any particular condition. As the mind becomes enlightened, you will actually just be joyful all the time without needing any particular situation or experience to create it. The mind will just be joyful all the time. So part of the Buddhist teachings, just like we're working to eliminate these painful feelings, we're also working to eliminate these pleasant feelings. Because as long as the mind chases after this pleasant feelings, and it's not in the middle, it's going to this happiness, excitement, and elation, you're just inviting it to swing back to the other side. Because the mind is still conditioned to experience these pleasant feelings on some condition, the car, the new job, the new income, the boyfriend, girlfriend, clothes. And because the mind is conditioned to feel those pleasant feelings based on those conditions, it means it's going to also experience sadness, depression, anger, and all the rest based on conditions that are removed from the mind or other conditions that are in the mind. So what we're doing through enlightenment and the process to attain enlightenment is removing all these conditions so that the mind can just be naturally peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not based on any conditions, but it just resides in that mental state without any need or without any attachment, without any craving, desire, any longing with a strong eagerness for something external to create this happiness or excitement or elation. The mind is inwardly joyful, right? The mind in the enlightened mental state is inwardly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, inwardly, naturally, without any conditions. And in order to do that, you need to be aware when the mind's going into these painful feelings to bring it back to the middle, unconditioned and unattached to those conditions that are creating the sadness, anger, guilt, shame, fear, whatever. And likewise, when you see the happiness, excitement, and elation arise in the mind, these pleasant feelings, you need to recognize those conditions that are creating it, and you need to eliminate those conditions from the mind and bring the mind back to the middle where it can be naturally inwardly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not based on these conditions. Because if you allow the mind to do that with happiness, excitement, and elation, it's going to then revert to sadness, anger, frustration, irritation. It's just a matter of time of when that happens. Okay, so those are the first two feelings, painful feelings and pleasant feelings. And then likewise, the human mind also experiences feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. I refer to this as boredom, loneliness, melancholy, shyness, displeased, uncomfortable, unsatisfied. Some people say boredom and loneliness is very painful for them. And if that's what you feel, then okay, you can put it up in the painful category if you like. It doesn't really matter which category. The idea is that you spot it when the mind is in one of these three feelings, 
painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant. When you're a spotted, when you're aware of it, that's mindfulness. That's awareness of mind. That's right mindfulness. And when you spot the sadness and you can bring the mind back to the middle, or when you spot the pleasant feelings of happiness and you can bring the mind back to the middle, or when you spot the shyness or the uncomfortableness of feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, when you have awareness of mind, mindfulness, and you can bring the mind from that boredom, loneliness, shyness, uncomfortableness, and you can actively move it to the middle with various aspects of practice from the Buddhist teachings, then the mind is now residing in the middle for longer and longer periods of time. But you have to train the mind to be able to do this through the Eightfold Path, which is what we're going to study on Sunday. But here with the six doorways of discontentedness that we're about to get into, you can become utterly aware. You can have extreme amount of mindfulness that as these feelings arise, not only do you spot the craving, desire, attachment that is causing and creating the condition of the painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant, but you can also be aware of the doorway that this discontentedness has entered through because becoming extremely aware of the doorways to discontentedness, now you can guard those doorways. It doesn't mean you guard them in a fearful way, but we're going to talk about what it means to guard these doorways and protect your contentedness. That is a very helpful way to approach practice on a day-by-day basis. But before we get into that, let me just pause here and see if we have any questions on anything we've been discussing so far about discontentedness and where we're headed in today's discussion. I suppose, Dave, is someone hearing this for the first time that we're looking to eliminate pleasant feelings might object on the grounds that, okay, I know they're impermanent, but big deal. If I feel that it's worth it, if I feel that the pleasantness is worth the maybe hangover that I get the next morning or the feeling of longing for it once it's gone. What if I feel that's worth it? And what if I feel that the things that I want can outlast me? I know they're impermanent, but the house that I live in is going to outlast me. The family that I love, the children perhaps are going to outlast me. So if someone was coming with that objection, what would you share with them to help them see the bigger picture here? It's back to what I was mentioning in our little talk there is that by allowing the mind to hold on to these pleasant feelings that are impermanent, you're inviting in the other feelings. You're inviting in the sadness, the boredom, the loneliness, the uncomfortableness. So you have to ask yourself, you know, can you be content with this permanent joy, right? The permanent joy that you experience in the unenlightened mental state is better and more fulfilling than any kind of temporary happiness that you may experience. You know, I I don't care what the temporary happiness is or the temporary excitement or elation, that permanent joy where the mind is inwardly fulfilled, inwardly satisfied, and never experiences even the slightest bit 
of sadness or anger, frustration or shame or guilt or fear or boredom or loneliness, never experiencing those feelings again is very, very healthy and very much a a wonderful feeling to have. So I wouldn't describe it as a pleasant feeling, that inner joy, but it certainly feels wonderful to never need to ever experience sadness or anger ever again in your life because now the mind isn't clouded with these feelings of painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. And as you make decisions in your life, your life just continues to get better and better because you're not making decisions through these three feelings. So if someone's chasing after pleasant feelings and happiness, excitement, elation, they will oftentimes make decisions motivated out of chasing that those pleasant feelings rather than what is a good, wholesome decision for me to make to have this permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. People make these very reactive, almost irrational decisions that they feel like are rational in the moment because the mind is chasing these pleasant feelings. But after they've experienced that high, whatever that high is, then the mind's right back to where it started from. It's right back into the sadness, anger, boredom, loneliness, whatever. And you're just kind of constantly chasing this high, right? Not just with drugs and alcohol or sex or other addictions like this, but all types of pleasant feelings that the mind is chasing after. So the joy, the inner joy, the inner fulfillment that is just naturally present there all the time in the enlightened mental state is much better and more rewarding than any kind of temporary happiness, excitement, and elation that you might experience. Right, yeah. I think often the case is when one pursues these pleasant feelings, they're not actually making the link and seeing the full picture and seeing the other side of it. And if only one could see the harm that can be done as well in, in pursuing the craving, then it would seem like a very obvious decision just to not, not grasp at pleasant feelings or anything that leads to pleasant feelings. Right. And one of the reasons why I talk about this is, of course, because the number one aspect of practice in the Buddhist teachings is to eliminate discontentedness because that's the goal. But the other reason why I talk about this is because a lot of us have been brought up and conditioned to think that the goal in life is to be happy. And a lot of us are taught to chase this happiness. And because the mind is conditioned to chase this happiness, then we start assigning certain things to what is it going to take to make the mind happy? And oftentimes it comes down to certain material wealth, you know, like certain land or cars or uh, currency in the bank or a certain amount of money or certain type of clothes or certain type of food, maybe a certain type of boyfriend or girlfriend around you. And the mind is kind of chasing after this stuff and it never gets fully fulfilled. You know, you get that $100,000 a year job and then you want 150, then you want 250, then you want 300. And the mind is just chasing it, never actually becoming peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's constantly chasing this happiness. Or in another situation, you kind of, in your 20s or 30s, you find a a life partner, you get married, they're so beautiful, they're so loving, they're so kind. You see this 
beautiful human being who's so young and so vibrant, you know, and if you associate that with happiness, right, if you associate this young, vibrant, beautiful being with your happiness, as you age and as they age, if your mind is still craving that young, vibrant, beautiful person, you may walk out and give up on this relationship and become bored of this person who you've dedicated the last 20, 30 years of your life with, maybe even have a family with, and have all kinds of wholesome things going on in your life, you may crave that younger, beautiful looking being that you feel is somehow going to bring happiness into your life because the mind is craving and assigning happiness to this younger version of a human being. And there's lots of people that wreck marriages and relationships and really cause a lot of harm in family settings with children because they're chasing after this unrealistic, permanent beauty. And there's nothing wrong with older people dating younger people and being with younger people. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But where it can run into problems is that people will make decisions early in life. They will age. They'll look at their partner at 45, 50, 60 years old and be like, you know what? I want a younger person. And in this relationship that has been going on for 30, 40 years or or what have you with children and grandchildren, people can destroy an otherwise really peaceful home life because the mind is chasing after this younger version of a partner because the mind is craving this happiness and it's assigning happiness to material wealth, to physical beauty, to certain attributes externally. And as long as you chase this external happiness, the mind is never going to be inwardly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You're never going to experience that permanent mental state of enlightenment as long as the mind is chasing this external happiness. So that's why I like to talk about this happiness, excitement, elation, because we've all been, or a lot of us have been conditioned to think that happiness is the goal and it's chasing these external things that are going to create the happiness. Well, yeah, it does. These external things certainly create happiness for sure, but it's all impermanent. And that's why the mind ends up being bored or sad or lonely because it's chasing this external happiness. When if it just looked for inward contentedness, inward joy, based on no conditions, then you will see that your life can be quite peaceful and quite stable and quite wonderful because you've already got everything you need. You're not chasing after anything. Great, thank you for that, David. We do have another question, but I think it's best kept for the next slide. Okay, so let's go to the six doorways of discontentedness. We call these the six doorways of discontentedness You also hear them referred to as the sense faculties or the sense organs. These are the doorways where the mind takes in and experiences discontentedness. Essentially, the sense faculties are facilitating discontentedness. These doorways are what facilitates the discontentedness. So remember, discontentedness is painful feelings pleasant feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. 
each one of these doorways has the potential to produce any of these three feelings in the mind. So the six doorways are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, which are the five senses, and then the mind, the sixth, sixth doorway. So it's eyes, the certain forms that we see with the eyes can produce either painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Certain things that we hear, sounds that we hear, can produce painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant feelings. Smells that we experience with the nose, once again, can produce in the mind any of these three feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. The tongue, things that we taste, that we experience, can produce any of those three feelings. And then physical contact with the body, we can also experience any of those three feelings, painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant. And then the sixth one, which is the mind, our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own perceptions in the mind can produce painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. Now we're going to go through these and I'm going to give you some examples for each individual one so you can kind of identify these and see that it's truth because you've experienced this already. You can see that it's truth if you start looking at this pretty closely. So let's talk about the eyes with painful feelings, okay? If you see a child fall down and hurt themselves, or if you saw a child get hit by a car, or you saw a child get hit by their parent, right? That's something you see with the eyes, and it's going to most likely, in your unenlightened mind, it's going to produce painful feelings, Right? It's going to produce sadness or anger or frustration or what have you. You would only know and you would only experience it, right? But seeing certain things like a child getting hurt or perhaps an animal getting hit by a car or seeing someone get killed, right? Anything that you see with the eyes, and I'm kind of going to the extreme, right? But it can also be on the lighter side too, right? Maybe you have a favorite little figurine at your house. Maybe you have like a certain statue that your grandmother or your mom gave you or a piece of jewelry. And you come home and you see it's broken or it's fallen. You see this with the eyes and this can produce painful feelings, right? It can produce sadness because you saw with the eyes that this statue broke and you have this certain affection, this craving, this desire, this longing, this strong eagerness to keep it permanently. And when it broke, because it's impermanent, now the eyes see that and it produces painful feelings in the mind. Do you guys see that, right? You can probably think about things that you've seen in the last few days or the last few weeks that has produced painful feelings in the mind. Right. So if you look at this, you can see, yeah, you can see that there's certain things that when you see them, it produces painful feelings. Right. You're driving in traffic. Someone cuts you off in traffic. You're seeing that with the eye. You're seeing a form 
the car, moving in front of you. Remember, we're not talking about in the Buddhist teachings what's right or wrong. We're not talking about whether that guy or girl is right or wrong for cutting you off. We're just talking about why is the mind discontent? Well, the mind is discontent because of this doorway called the eyes, and it sees this form of this car that cuts in front of you. And because the mind is craving permanence and it wants this lane of traffic permanently, when impermanence happens, the mind is uncomfortable with that. And it produces painful feelings, anger, frustration, right? This is where road rage comes from. So you can see that the eyes are a doorway to these painful feelings. They're also a doorway to the pleasant feelings as well, right? You see your child playing sports and they hit a home run or they score a goal or whatever. It feels happy, right? You feel excited. You feel elated because your child has done something wonderful, but you're seeing it with the eyes. You're seeing a form, the child kicking the ball into the goal. The eyes seeing that form is what's drawing in the content and it's producing these pleasant feelings because of this strong eagerness and this longing for good things to happen for the child. And that's what's producing this happy, pleasant feelings, right? Or you see this beautiful creature. You see a beautiful man or a woman or something, some affection of your desire. You see it with the eyes, right? And this produces pleasant feelings. Or you see this menu at a restaurant and you see this dish of this amazing dish that you really wanted to get and you had no idea this restaurant has it and you see it and it's like wow I can get this dish and you feel happy and you feel excited and you feel elated okay this is because of forms that you see now back to what Max was just asking me about when you do that when you get so excited because they have the dish at this restaurant that you'd like to eat and you order it and then they go back to the kitchen and you're so excited talking to your friend how you're so excited you're going to get this dish and now they come back and say, oh, we've run out of that. We don't have any more of that today. That's when the sadness, that's when the anger comes, right? Because the mind was holding on and had this pleasant feeling, this pleasant association with this certain meal that you thought you were going to have. And because of this pleasant feelings that arose in the mind through this doorway of the eyes, now you set yourself up for failure that now the mind can become angered or sad if that doesn't get fulfilled. So the eyes can experience pleasant feelings right? This is experienced in multiple different ways. And this is a doorway of how the mind experiences those pleasant feelings. Then the mind can experience neither painful nor pleasant through the eyes as well. This would be kind of like boredom or loneliness, right? Where you're just kind of like watching a movie and it becomes boring and you just kind of like don't really see the certain imagery that you were expecting or the mind wanted to see or you know you get used to coming home and seeing 
the same house, the same color of paint, the same plants, the same house, the mind can become discontent because it just becomes bored with seeing the same thing over and over and over again. And this is what can happen back to talking about life partners. People, if they get lots of pleasure through seeing a partner when they're very young and very vibrant and very beautiful, as someone ages, if the mind is expecting this pleasant feelings through the eyes and viewing this partner, well, as the partner ages, it might just become kind of boring. The same woman or the same man or the same partner over and over and over again. And now the mind is kind of bored because it's craving these pleasant feelings through the eyes. The mind can then move to neither painful nor pleasant based on certain forms that you see, right? So let me pause here before we go into the next one and see if there's any questions that you can see how these doorways are starting to operate and how you take in certain content that creates either painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant in the mind. I think this might be a good time, David, to revisit the question that Amina's daughter had a couple of classes ago. Sure. So Amina's daughter asks, we live in a very busy spot and people talk very loudly and I sometimes get annoyed. How can I not be annoyed? Okay, that goes to how we guard these doorways, okay? Let me just check. Do you guys feel like you understand these doorways? Like I could go through every single one of these and give you examples, right? About how the hearing something can cause painful feelings, right? Like that's what Amina's daughter, Myla, is talking about. Like she's hearing loud voices. And by hearing those voices, it's causing painful feelings, frustration, even just annoyance, right? Even if she's just annoyed, it's a painful feeling. But you can also hear music that you enjoy, that causes pleasant feelings. Or you can be in a situation where it's just blase, blase and feel neither painful nor pleasant, right? And we can talk about the nose. You can smell certain sewage or certain bodily scents that cause painful feelings in the mind. Or you can smell certain scents that cause pleasurable feelings, right? This is why some of us wear cologne or perfume. We put on these scents because we would like to attract the person's mind to come to us, right? And those pleasant feelings we associate with certain smells. This is why when you're trying to sell a house, a lot of times people will say you should bake bread or you should bake cookies in the house to create pleasant feelings so that when the, the potential homeowner comes to look at your house, they associate these pleasant feelings with your house and then the mind craves and wants to buy your house because of that scent, right? This is how people can actually manipulate these things. So we could go through these, right? And we could talk about like the body, right? Like people bumping into you when you're walking down the street. For some people that can be painful to feel, to experience the sensation of the person hitting you. You know, maybe it's accident, maybe it's on purpose, who knows? We could talk about the tongue, you know, certain foods that you taste are painful or pleasant or neither painful nor pleasant. That's what's produced in the mind. And then the mind itself, right? This negative self-talk can produce painful feelings. Or 
positive, arrogant, egotistical self-talk can produce pleasant feelings or just blase, blase, I'm not really meant to be here anymore, my life's a wreck, my, you know, and just neither painful nor pleasant, just boring and lonely and miserable feelings, right? That, that maybe aren't exactly painful, but they're neither painful nor pleasant. So each one of these six doorways are ways that we take in stimulus, or in the case of the mind, the stimulus is already there, and the mind produces painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So with Myla's question, it goes to guarding these doorways, right? We need to guard these doorways and be aware that this is how the mind experiences discontentedness. So when you hear the music, you know that the mind is producing its own discontentedness. And if it's experiencing frustration or annoyance or anger, or whatever it is, because of the music, you know that it's because of the ear in this doorway. But you also know that this music or this sound or this arguing or whatever is going on, you know that it's impermanent. And you need to do what's called protecting your own contentedness. Don't allow the mind to hold on to this and just dwell and think that it's going to be permanent. Just recognize that it's impermanent. You have choices to make. You can either stay in that situation and just know that it's impermanent and usually within 10 or 15 minutes it's over. Or if it's pretty significant, let's just say that somebody's having a block party around your house and you'd like to get some quiet time and it's gonna be six or eight hours of constant music. Well, you can't change that situation. And perhaps if you stay in the situation, in the unenlightened mind, maybe you're going to be angry and frustrated for that whole six or eight hours which you don't want to incur. So it's impermanent. You can make a choice to physically leave the area if you like, right? And you can get up and you can leave and you can go to a park, you can go to a friend's house, you can go shopping. You have to recognize that this is impermanent and either you need to stay in the situation and know that it's going to be over shortly or you need to move to a different situation. Where I live, the room in the house that I use, our houses are pretty close together. I've got three houses right outside my house. And there's a little girl next to us that I think has autism, but I'm not sure. And pretty frequently, morning and night, she will be screaming and yelling. It's some kind of problem in the mind or maybe like even like a, an inner ear infection or something, but it's been happening for years where she just screams out in agony and pain. And I know that I pretty much hear that regularly on a regular basis, but it's usually over within five or 10 minutes or so. And the first few times that I ever heard it several, several years ago, yeah, it bothered me. But then I just trained the mind to just ignore it and I know it's impermanent. And then there's also situations where there's like stray cats in our village and there's some of them that are pretty old and kind of decrepit and they will sit outside my window and kind of cry and moan. And I'll hear this at nighttime oftentimes. 
you know, just kind of train the mind that, okay, it's impermanent and that's that being and that's an animal and yeah, it's in pain and it's in agony and it's got to live out its life and there's nothing I can do to fix that. And uh, it's a stray cat. Even if I tried to help it, it would run away from me. So it's just impermanent sound. So you're probably not going to be able to affect the change of the sound. But if you are, that's where you can go to a neighbor, perhaps talk to them, bring them a little gift, talk to them, help them understand that their music is bothersome to you, um, but in a very polite and kind way and see if they're willing to understand that and maybe only play music during certain times of day or you can work out some agreement with them. A training the mind to attain enlightenment doesn't mean that everything's always going to go your way, right? You're still living in a world that has impermanence. So you're going to hear sounds at times when the mind would prefer that there's quiet, right? That's going to happen during your life, whether you're unenlightened or enlightened. But it's all about how your mind relates to this sound, right? And you've got to make decisions. Are you going to allow that sound to cause the mind to be discontent? Are you going to allow it to cause irritation, annoyance, and anger just because the mind craves silence? Are you going to allow the mind, because it's hearing this noise, to now be discontent? So you've got to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in all situations. But with that said, it doesn't mean that you just need to sit there and grin and bear it either. You can make active decisions to improve the condition. Just like this silence that you have is impermanent, this noise or this music or this sound that is arising that you'd rather not have, that's impermanent as well. So you don't have to just sit there, grin and bear it. Like I mentioned, you can leave or you can choose that it's probably only going to be 10 minutes or you can choose to go talk to the people in a polite, kind and friendly way. Right. And there's maybe other choices that you could make as well to improve the situation. So an enlightened mind isn't going to look at this noise as noise or a problem. They're going to look at it like, okay, there's this impermanent sound and how do I protect my contentedness here? Do I just sit here and just see how the mind responds and check to see, you know, that it lasts only 10 or 15 minutes and it's over? Or does it look like it's going to last longer and I choose to leave? Or do I go talk to my neighbors in a polite kind of friendly way? So everything is not going to go your way when you're enlightened, but you will have the wisdom that you need to protect your contentedness and you need to make active choices in order to ensure that the mind can be content, right? And those choices are going to be different in every situation. So that's why the Buddha never said, well, if you have a neighbor who's playing loud music, here's the solution, do this right? Like this one for one mapping. If your partner cheats on you, do this, 
right? If you lose your job, do this. Oftentimes, we think that these traditions and these wise sages, these wise teachers are going to give us kind of like this roadmap. If this happens, do this. If that happens, do this. Well, there's so many different variables and there's so many different possible solutions that the Buddha never told you exactly what to do. What he's doing is he's training the mind to not experience discontentedness. Because while he's not telling you exactly what to do and how to solve the fact that music or some sound or annoying sound or some something is coming into the ears that's causing the mind to be discontent, he's not telling you what to do to fix that sound. He's telling you what to do to fix the mind so that the mind doesn't become discontent because of the sound. Because you can't change the fact that you're going to hear sounds at times when you'd rather not hear sounds because everything's impermanent. Everything isn't going to happen the way that we want it to happen in the world. So this is where he didn't give you exactly what to do but he's training the mind of what not to do. Don't crave permanence. Don't crave and expect that there's always going to be silence. Don't have this mental longing and strong eagerness that everything's always going to be your way. Don't always have these expectations that everything should be your way. He also says, you know, don't have this anger, frustration, irritation. He also teaches you about, in the Eightfold Path, about how to practice harmlessness and right speech. So now if we choose as a choice to go talk to our neighbors, we do that with right intention and right speech. So you've got this framework, right? Or some people call the Buddhist teachings a philosophy, right? I call it a life practice. So you've got all these various teachings that you might employ at different times, and you have to choose what's the right approach to take. When I hear this music, hmm, do I choose to leave? Do I choose to stay? Do I choose to go talk to my neighbor if I choose to do that? How do I do that? With right intention, with right speech. So you've got this framework, this life practice in which to operate in and you make the best choices for yourself. You know to become angry isn't going to help the situation because it's just going to clout the judgment. You know to go talk to your neighbor with hostility or aggression isn't going to produce anything wholesome. So as you kind of work through this and get better and better at practicing the teachings, you will choose, how do I address this situation? Do I just leave? Do I stay? Do I go talk to my neighbor? Or maybe there's other choices that you have as well. And the more that you learn this life practice, this philosophy, this better way of life that the Buddha taught to live, the more you learn it, understand its wisdom, and then apply it in daily life in situations like this, then you will get better and better at doing so. Where initially you might have to really think it through. It might take you 20, 30 minutes or even an hour to decide what are you going to do about this sound. And then ultimately you might come to a certain decision and you might go to your neighbor 
and it turns out wonderfully. And you realize, okay, this seems like a good way for me to handle these situations. And then that becomes wisdom that you use in other similar situations. Or you decide to go talk to your neighbor and it goes like 50% good or 80% good. And then you reflect on that and you figure out where did you go wrong? How could you have made that better? And then when you reflect on the five factors of well-spoken speech, you reflect on all the rest of the Eightfold Path, the, the rest of the teachings, maybe you consult your teacher, you understand this challenge that you face more and more, now you gain more wisdom how you can potentially improve your practice so that you can affect better results in the future, right? So it's learning these teachings, it's applying them in daily life, recognizing that there are going to be challenges in life, things still aren't gonna always go your way, but the music isn't the problem or the argument with the neighbor isn't the problem. The problem is in the mind and realizing that the problem is your problem in the mind and then applying these teachings to train the mind to address these situations, you will become better and better at it where you can more easily make these decisions based on this life practice and it will become first nature to you. Now in the unenlightened mind, the mind's been functioning through this anger and frustration and you know annoyance and all this. So the mind, you know, it's almost like it's on the old operating system of the mind, like an old computer on an old operating system. And now the Buddhist teachings are being installed in the mind. You're upgrading the mind to this new operating system. And it's going to take you a little bit of time to figure out this new version of the operating system on the computer. You're not going to be able to seamlessly get all the tasks done that you normally would get done. So you've got to kind of take your time, approach it a little bit more slowly, reflect on what you're doing, reflect on the results, and then improve your conduct, improve your practice until you get better and better in this new operating system. And then once you get up on this new operating system, then you can very fluidly, like first nature, get all the tasks done that you need to get done. But it's a lot of work to get it to this new operating system that the Buddha is sharing with you. But the beauty is, is that once you get there and you understand this operating system, it's not going to change, right? It's not like a new version comes out every year because what the Buddhist teachings are teaching you is the natural laws of existence, which are permanent. The natural laws of existence are permanent. So once you move from this unenlightened mind on the old operating system to this new operating system through gaining this wisdom, once you're functioning with the mind on this new operating system of an enlightened mind, it's permanent and you know how to handle daily life and daily situations and there's not a new version coming out next year because it's the same natural laws of existence from the Buddha's lifetime that existed then that exists now. Nothing's changed about the natural laws of existence. So that's one of the beauties about just taking your time, realizing that it's a gradual progress, it's a gradual progression from this unenlightened mind to the enlightened mind there's a process here of learning the teachings consistently and dedicatedly, training the mind through meditation, applying the Eightfold Path, 
applying that in daily life in certain situations, and then consulting with your teacher when things go well and when things don't go well, and getting more and more help to get up on this new operating system of the Buddhist teachings, which will be an enlightened mind where you'll never experience discontentedness ever again. Thank you, David. I think we're all understanding things clearly, and we have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so what I would encourage you guys to do with these six doorways of discontentedness is be aware that this is how the mind is going to experience these painful, pleasant, and neither painful nor pleasant feelings. That this is how the input or the content gets into the mind, okay? Through these six doorways. Now, moving towards the Eightfold Path and the Ten Fetters. We haven't talked about the Eightfold Path, but we've talked about the Ten Fetters. If you know that you're working on eliminating certain aspects of the Ten Fetters, let's just pick one that was one of the most challenging for me, which is sexual cravings, okay? Craving for sexual pleasure, right? This is pleasure that's coming from the eyes, of course, seeing the physical form of a partner, also the maybe the nose right like smelling certain things you know the perfume the sense of a partner maybe even hearing pleasurable things from a partner but the physical body right like the the physical body feeling the pleasure of sexual contact if you're trying to eliminate sensual desires as one of the fetters and you may eventually get to that or you may not well if you're guarding the doorways right? If you're going to guard these doorways and protect your contentedness and you're actively moving towards, let's just say you even have three or four boyfriends or girlfriends right now and you want to move to just one, right? Because what I'm sharing with you applies to that situation too. Or eventually you're moving to no sexual contact at all. Either way, if you're moving from these four, five, six partners down to one, and you know you have this sexual craving, guarding your doorways is understanding that there's the potential for that craving of sexual pleasure to arise through these doorways. So you probably don't want to put yourself in situations where the eyes are viewing certain physical forms, right? So if you're dealing with this sexual craving, would you want to be looking at a magazine that has naked bodies or beautiful bodies? Would you want to go to like a strip club or someplace where disrobed people are dancing and entertaining? You know, when you go into a shopping center and there's like the perfume cologne section, if you know your mind gets sexual cravings arise when you smell certain smells, maybe you want to go to a different floor and enter into the store on that level rather than put yourself through this 30 seconds of, oh, wow, that smells so wonderful, right? These seem like kind of trivial things, but when you're working to extinguish craving and you've got really strong craving, like for example, with sexual craving, even something as small as a scent can arise the sexual craving, ignite it, and then you might actually pursue it. 
So for me, I'm speaking from experience that, yeah, when certain people walk past me or when I would walk into certain parts of a store and smell perfumes or makeup or things like this, it would excite sexual craving. So when I was dealing with that really closely and trying to extinguish that, I would make sure that I wasn't entering into a particular store on a level where they actually had these scents. And I would protect this doorway. I would guard this doorway by going to another area and entering the store. Over time, as I extinguished this craving, now it doesn't matter. I can go into that store no problem and I can smell any kind of smell and it doesn't arise sexual craving. But during that sensitive time where I was knocking down the sexual craving, I had to make conscious choices to guard the doorways, right? And when I would walk in the mall, for example, you know, I find Thai people very, very attractive. You know, I've married a Thai woman, so obviously I find Thai women to be very, very physically attractive. So when I would walk in the mall, there's all kinds of beautiful people in terms of what I consider to be really attractive for this craving that I was working on. They're all over the place, right? They're everywhere. So when I would walk in the mall for when I was working on this very heavily, I would just look straight down at the ground. I would just stare at the ground and I would like walk straight in the mall and I wouldn't look anywhere. And then over time, as I got better and better, I raised my eyes up and I would see a beautiful person and I would feel the craving arise and I would have to extinguish that and cut it off. And maybe somebody would brush past me and I would smell or I would feel, you know, this warm woman, you know, brush past me by accident and it would arise this craving and I had to cut that off, right? But protecting your doorways of discontentedness is to be aware of what your cravings are, what your attachments are. And then when you find yourself in situations, protect those doorways so it doesn't arise those cravings or don't put yourself in those situations to arise those cravings, right? So another thing is like when I would go get massages, right? And I would go get massages. If I got a massage with a really beautiful woman, that would excite a lot of craving, right? And there's different types of massages here in, in Thailand. There's oil massage or like a table massage where you disrobe. And then there's Thai massage, which is done in clothing. So when I was working really, really closely to get rid of this sexual craving, I started to do the massages with clothing on the Thai massages because they feel wonderful and they're great. And this is a way that I chose to protect the doorway of the physical body and the pleasure. Sure, I was getting the massage of Thai massage because it helps with health. It helps to alleviate physical pain, but I didn't need to be naked and receive the oil massage in order to receive that care that I needed in order to address the physical pain. So there was a period of time where I only did Thai massages. And then after I felt like the craving was extinguished, then I would do like one oil massage just to try to see if there was any sexual craving that was arising. I was testing my mind, 
rather than wait for something to happen to arise the craving, I was kind of challenging the mind where I would sometimes do a oil massage just to see and test the mind and see if craving arise. And then I would go back to these Thai massages. So there's all this level of detail that you can work through if you really want to get into it. And if you're aware of your craving, your desires, your attachments, not just with sexual pleasures, but other things like maybe you're choosing that you want to stop drinking beer or wine, for example. Maybe that's something that you've chosen that you would like to do. Well, protecting your doorway of discontentedness might be that you don't show up in any bars or restaurants that serve wine and beer for a while because your craving isn't quite controlled and you know if you go to those places, you're gonna pull the trigger and you're going to drink a glass of wine or a glass of beer. Or you choose not to go out to a bar or you choose not to go out with certain friends at that particular time because you know that they're going to be drinking and your willpower isn't strong enough to hold it back. So protecting your doorway might be to choose not to go with those particular friends or to that particular establishment that serves a particular product. Because if you see it with the eyes, you're going to want it, you're gonna crave it. And if you smell it, with other people drinking it, or you smell it on other people's breath, because of that doorway creating those pleasant feelings, you're going to have that craving. And if you're trying to extinguish this craving of ingesting wine or beer, to guard your doorway would be to protect your contentedness and not allow the mind to be in an environment where that craving will arise. And then as you progress more and more and more, you might choose to do what I did, which is after six months or so of having these other type of massages, I kind of challenged the mind to see if sexual craving would arise when I was getting an oil massage. You might choose after a certain number of months of, or years of not having drank alcohol, you might choose to go back into an environment like that and just kind of challenge the mind or not. You might not choose to ever challenge your mind that way because there's no need to, right? So you have to choose how you're going to use these doorways in order to help facilitate training of the mind. But this is how you can get down to a really detailed level of how to actually train the mind when you realize that it is these six doorways that is exciting and arising this craving in the mind. Because the goal is to extinguish the craving extinguish the desire, extinguish the attachment. And if you know that it's these six doorways that are going to excite it, then you can guard them by making conscious decisions about where you choose to do, where you choose to be, and how you choose to conduct your daily life. Okay. Any questions on any of that? Thanks, David. We have no questions at the moment. All right. So let's go into our meditation for today. And the meditation is really interesting because it connects to these six doorways, right? Because one of the things that we do in meditation is we typically close our eyes, right? Why do we close our eyes? Because we're guarding one of our doorways to discontentedness, right? We close the eyes because that's one of the ways that stimulus comes into the mind.
And this is one of the ways that I used to also protect my contentedness and guard my doorways. When I started practicing more and more deep and I was in situations where someone might be yelling at me or being hostile with me, I would just close the eyes. And that's one of the way to guard your doorways because if I left my eyes open and I saw this inflamed individual being hostile, maybe I would become hostile as well. So there were certain situations where to guard my doorways and protect my contentedness when in that situation I just closed my eyes. So here in meditation, we close our eyes because we're guarding our doorway to discontentedness. Here, I would like to share with you guys for talking about our meditation, our breathing mindfulness meditation. I haven't shared this in this particular version of the group learning program, which is Gautama Buddha's teachings on why it is that we're focusing on the breath. Okay, I just grabbed a couple of things here. This is a sutra that he's giving and he's talking about at the beginning of the sutra. He's talking about how you should choose to have good companions, good comrades, and good associates by being around good, wholesome, moral people that are making good decisions. A person who's on the path to enlightenment, their mind will lean towards enlightenment as they choose to be around people who are making good, wholesome decisions. Whereas if you're choosing to be around people who use cocaine or heroin or things like this. Not that there's anything wrong with those people in terms of we're not going to judge them, but if you're choosing to be in these certain environments, then the mind's going to tend to move in that direction versus if you choose to be around people who are making good, wholesome decisions, your mind's going to tend to lean in that direction. So he's talking about that at the beginning of this. And he says, you know, having based himself on those five things, he talks about five things that somebody should do in order to kind of establish a foundation of practice. He says a bhikkhu or a student should develop further another four things. And these are four things that he says we should train our mind to develop. This first one, he says, is the perception of unattractiveness should be developed to abandon lust, right? So if you have sexual craving and you have multiple partners and you're trying to move that down to one, or if you're trying to abandon sexual cravings 100%, there's a way to actually meditate and develop the perception of unattractiveness of the human body. The Buddha talks about the reason why we have sexual desire and lust is because we don't see the body as it truly is, right? We see this outer layer of skin. We see the clothing. We see the hair. We see the makeup. We don't see the organs and the fluids and the bones and all those other things. So there's actually techniques to develop unattractiveness of the body in order to abandon sexual craving. Right. So if you end up getting to that point at some time, you can reach out to me and I will help you eliminate sexual craving. So if you have challenges with pornography or masturbation or lots of boyfriends and girlfriends and you want to move this to kind of a more wholesome sexual conduct or sexual life, 
then this meditation can help you. Or if you're trying to eliminate sexual contact entirely, this meditation can help you as well. Then he talks about this second thing that should be developed. He says loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. This again relates back to the fetter of ill will or the quality of mind or the unwholesome root or the poison of hatred, anger, or ill will. So by cultivating loving kindness in the mind and practicing that in daily life, you can actually abandon this hatred, anger, ill will, which is something we're going to do next Wednesday. And then today what we're going to do is breathing mindfulness meditation, which is this third thing that the Buddha says that a practitioner should develop, which is mindfulness of breathing. I call it breathing mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts or let them go because the mind has this tendency to hold on. This is what we were talking about on Sunday, the Four Noble Truths. The mind craves permanence. It wants to hold on to things permanently. And because of that longing and strong eagerness, the mind is causing itself to be discontent. So the solution, the remedy, the antidote that the Buddha prescribes is breathing mindfulness meditation should be developed to cut off thoughts. By training the mind and breathing mindfulness meditation to let go of the thoughts and just focus on the breath, you're training the mind to not crave permanence. You're training the mind to easily let go of things not to have this longing and strong eagerness. That's why in meditation, the training is to cut off the thoughts and focus on the breath. Or that's why I often guide and I say, let go of the thoughts and focus on the breath. Because by training the mind in this way, then you will be able to control the mind so that in daily life, when you encounter a situation that is unpleasant, and you've taken in some stimulus through one of these six doorways, then you can cut it off. So if you see something with the eye that's pleasurable and it's arising some craving or pleasurable thought in the mind, you can then cut that off in daily life. But you're only going to be able to do that if you do it in meditation first. So you need to train the mind in meditation first over multiple sessions so that then you don't always have to guard your doorways. Guarding the doorways is something you do for kind of like a temporary basis. While the mind's moving from the unenlightened state to the enlightened state. Once you get to the enlightened state, there's nothing that's going to tempt the mind. You know, once you've eradicated the fetter of central desire, you can stare a naked person that you find highly attractive and beautiful, you know, naked, and you won't have the craving for sex because you fully extinguished it, right? But while you're in the process of doing that, that's where guarding the doorways is important. So as you're training the mind in meditation through breathing mindfulness meditation, training it to cut off the thoughts and let go of the thoughts, focused on the breath, developing singleness of mind, now you're able to better control the mind so that when you're in daily life 
and something enters in through the doorways of discontentedness and there is a painful feeling or there is a pleasant feeling or there is a feeling that's neither painful nor pleasant because you've trained in meditation to cut it off you can now cut it off in daily life too so when the boredom arises you can cut it off or when the happiness excitement elation arises you can cut it off or when the sadness or anger hostility arises you can cut it off as you do that more and more in daily life eventually those feelings won't arise at all you won't have sadness arise at all but you have to kind of keep cutting it down and keep cutting it down and then eventually it won't come back up again but it takes a lot of practice to get to that point but we do that in breathing mindfulness meditation then this fourth thing that the buddha talks about that should be developed is the perception of impermanence meaning you need to deeply soak into the mind the universal truth of impermanence you need to look around everywhere and be able to see impermanence everywhere around you right this is where the buddha said one who sees me sees the teachings one who sees the teachings sees me so if you see impermanence everywhere around you you can see the buddha because that's what he actually taught so you need to develop the perception of impermanence that everything around you is impermanent in order to eradicate the conceit i am conceit is arrogance this placing yourself above others right this judgment of others right like i am so wonderful right what he's talking about here is realizing non-self we talked about that as one of the fetters the personal existence view eradicating conceit is also a fetter right so the more that you understand impermanence and you realize that there is no self this isn't my body my son my house my car when you eradicate that through developing the perception of impermanence then you can also eradicate the personal existence view to realize non-self and you can also eradicate any kind of arrogance or egoism around certain possessions or around certain relationships or around a job title or around an income but you have to be able to perceive impermanence in order to eradicate the self and eradicate this arrogance i am so wonderful right so he goes on here he says when one perceives impermanence the perception of non-self is stabilized so eradicating the self from the mind stabilizing that there is no self fully realizing there is no self become stable in the mind and when you do that you've eventually realized non-self and you've eliminated that personal existence view one who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit i am which is nibbana in this very life so you wouldn't be able to get to nibbana until you 
stabilize non-self, i.e. realize non-self, eradicate the self. That's one aspect to even get to the first stage of enlightenment. But also, as you progress through all the fetters, you also need to eradicate conceit to get to the highest stage. There's 10 fetters, and one of those higher fetters is conceit or arrogance. You need to practice being humble and peaceful, not placing yourself above or below other beings, but look at everyone as equal, okay? With non-judgment, not judging other people, because that's where the ego wants to put itself above other people because it's judging others and it's placing yourself above them. And same thing, when you place yourself below others, it's because you're judging others and you're looking at them as so much higher than you and you have this negative self-talk in the mind and you place yourself below others. So by removing judgment, you can help to further stabilize non-self and eradicate conceit and more move into this enlightened mental state. Okay. Any questions on what I just shared here? Just to clarify something you said there, David, you talked about how when one abandons sensual desire, they can still look at someone and find them very beautiful, but not have a craving. And I presume that also applies to any of the six doorways, discontentedness, that we can experience an object, experience it and like it, find it attractive in some way or the reverse, but still not have this craving. Right. And it cannot cause your mind to be discontent. Right. So back to the example I used, like a child getting beaten by their parent in the unenlightened mind. You might see that it might cause anger. It might create frustration in the mind. An enlightened mind can see that same exact thing, but it's not going to get angry or frustrated. It's going to still be peaceful, calm and content. But it may choose to leave. It may choose to address the situation. An enlightened mind might do something else. There's lots of different options, but it's not going to get discontent. So this guarding of the doorways or this protecting of contentedness is something between the unenlightened mind and enlightened mind you have to get really, really good at. Because as the mind becomes aware of these different cravings, you're going to have to train the mind through active decision-making to move the mind in certain direction. And it's not until you fully eradicate that craving that the mind can be in that same situation and no longer experience discontentedness. So another example, I used to get really pleasant feelings when I would drink coffee and I would go to coffee shops and I would drink coffee and it was really pleasurable experience. And I realized that the caffeine was causing the mind headaches and these excited feelings and this, you know, excitedness that I didn't like in the mind. And I chose to get rid of that. So I had to guard this doorway to kind of knock down this craving. And I wouldn't go around coffee shops. But every once in a while, I would find myself around a coffee shop and I would go in and I would just order one after I hadn't had one for two weeks or 
four weeks. And then I would drink it and I would get a headache. I'm like, ah, oh, why did I do that? Right. And then I would go six weeks or eight weeks or two months. And then I would walk by another coffee shop and I would get one. And I'm like, oh, why did I do that? Right. I'd end up with a headache for the whole next day. Well, then eventually I got to the point where my willpower was strong enough that I wouldn't go in the coffee shop. But as I was walking past the coffee shop, I would smell it. Right. This is one of the doorways. I would smell the coffee. And then there would be a bit of craving that would arise. So this bit of craving would arise and I had to have willpower to extinguish that craving. So during that sensitive time, while that craving was there, I had to be very conscious of these six doorways and I had to actively make decisions to turn away from this craving and guard these doorways and try to not put myself in a position where the craving would arise. But now, having extinguished those cravings, I can walk past the coffee shop, I can go into a coffee shop with other people, I can sit down with people while they're drinking coffee, and I have no craving whatsoever to drink it because I've trained my mind in that particular way. But it's during that sensitive period where you're working on extinguishing these cravings that you have to be very aware. And this is where mindfulness comes in and also right effort as well, that if you've identified certain cravings that you're working on eliminating and you pay very close attention to those, then you can ensure that the mind's not in a situation where it's going to experience the arising of that craving. You can create conditions where it's more conducive for the mind to eliminate those cravings. And then once you've done that for a period of time and the craving has been fully extinguished, then yeah, you can do whatever you choose to do. And you'll notice that even given in the same situation, sitting in an actual coffee shop, the craving doesn't arise. And that's where for me, I chose to test my mind, right? I chose once I felt like the craving was extinguished for coffee and sexual craving and other things like this, I chose to put myself back in those situations just to kind of train my mind and and to see, was the craving truly rooted out? You know, did I feel any kind of craving arise whatsoever? And that's the way that I chose to practice because I really wanted to make sure that those cravings were extinguished a hundred million percent because there's no way I'm interested in coming back to this world (laughs) ever again, right? So I just made sure that I really was aware of the cravings that I was having, that I guarded the doorways, made sure I worked on eliminating those cravings, then put myself back in situations to ensure that the cravings were indeed eliminated. And once you do that, it's nice confirmation. It feels very good that you can know, okay, I'm done with that. I'm through with that. You know, I've eliminated that. But there's that sensitive period where like if you're trying to eliminate smoking and you're around other smokers or you just smell smoke on someone else's body, it can excite the craving and you've got to protect that doorway. And one of the ways to protect it is by doing a regular daily consistent meditation practice where you're training the mind to cut off the thoughts. Because as you walk past that smoker and you smell the smoke on their body, you've got to cut that off. 
And that's a way that you learn to then control the mind and you realize that you have complete control over the mind because you've trained it so well during meditation and in daily life. That's great. Thank you, David. We have no questions at the moment. Okay. So let's go ahead and do our meditation then. We'll do like we always do. So go ahead and get in your position, you know, seated, lying or standing and just kind of rest comfortably your lower body and bring your upper body so that your upper body is erect and you're using your muscles in your upper body. That keeps the attentiveness of the mind. That keeps the alertness of the mind because what meditation is, is it's an active, dedicated, purposeful training session of the mind. If we kind of slouch in our meditation posture, the mind has a tendency to turn off. It's not going to be active. So we need to keep the mind active. And the way that we do that is by keeping the muscles in the upper body erect. That keeps an active, attentive, alert mind. Now the hands and the arms, you can do a lot of different things with those. Gautama Buddha, he put his right hand, the back of his right hand on top of his left palm, and then he placed his thumbs together, and then he placed those in his lap, right? And if that works for you, use it. But if that's not comfortable, there's other options as well. This isn't about everyone doing meditation exactly the same. You can place your hands on your lap, you can place them on your knees, you can place them on an armrest if you're in a chair wherever is comfortable for you, okay? You're gonna to wanna to close your eyes because we're going to close that doorway, right? That protects the doorway by closing the eyes. And you take in a nice deep breath in through the nose and out through the nose. And you would like to focus the mind on the breath. The breath is the present moment. As any thoughts come into the mind about the past or the future, just cut those off and bring the mind back to the breath. As any thoughts or ideas or perceptions come into the mind, just let them go, cut them off and focus on the breath. So I'm just going to chant today and then go straight into meditation. I'm not gonna actually do the normal guidance that I normally do. I would just like you to just Focus after the chance, just reestablish the mind on the breath. As you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, after the chance, just fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of the air entering the nose over the skin. As there's thoughts, cut those off and bring the mind back to the breath. As there's thoughts, let them go and bring the mind back to the breath. And just keep in mind, this is your time. Nobody needs you right now. This is your time to train the mind. And you need to do this every day. Okay, so we'll start with chance and then we'll end with chance. In the middle, you're on your own to train the mind to focus on the breath. Arahang Sammasamoto Makawa Potang Makawa 
जाते सवखातो महकवता तमो तामं नमसामी सुपाध्यपानो महकवतो सावक संघो संघं नमामि नपमोरहसा भागवतो हराहतो समा संपुतसा नपमोरहसा भागवतो हराहतो समा संपुतसा नपमोरहसा भागवतो हराहतो समा संपुतसा Iti piso makwa arahang sama samoto wicara nang samono sakato rokawitu. Anu tero purisa dama sati sata tawa manusanang huto pagwati.
give you guys some time to ask any questions that you like about your meditation practice about any questions you have about what's going on what's happening anything to help you deepen your meditation practice anything that's going on not even just meditation but if you have any questions on the four noble truths or what is enlightenment or any of the other things that we've talked about up to this point I had a question earlier, David, from Deborah, and she had a question about discontentedness. She asks, how do you avoid seeming uncaring when you're trying to eliminate these feelings? Hmm. Well, I guess there is a lot of expectation in the world about if somebody comes to you and tells you that they lost their job or somebody's died there's kind of like built-in conditioning and expectations from people that you should feel their sadness 
right? That you should feel their heartache if they just ended a relationship or something. And, you know, I think the best way is to just be honest with people. And, you know, you don't have to say, oh, I'm so sad for you. I'm sad too. Or if someone came to me and said, I just lost my job, it's like, oh yeah, that's unfortunate. You know, do you have any plans for your next job? Like what's next? Right? Like I wouldn't dwell on they lost their job because the goal is that this person needs to move on. And if I'm like, oh, that's your favorite job. Oh, wow. How dare your boss fire you? Or how dare they lay you off? You were the best employee there. And you worked so hard for that company. And you were there for 10 years. How could they? You know, if you go there with the person, that's just exacerbating the discontentness on their part. My goal in talking with somebody is to help them move past it. And to me, that's the very most loving, kind, compassionate thing you can do for somebody. So if somebody came to me and said, oh, I just lost my job, I'd probably just say, oh, that's unfortunate. So what's your next plan? What is what are you looking to do next? Have you started looking for a job? You know, like I would have conversation with them along those lines rather than dwelling on the past that they lost this job. And I think that's a good way to show care is to help them walk forward. Or if someone says, you know, I just lost my mom. My mom just died. You know, I have to be in the moment. I don't have like a stock answer for everything. I know that's sometimes what we do in Western culture. We kind of have this stock answer. I'm sorry for your loss, right? And to me, that's the most uncompassionate thing you can do is have like a stock answer that we permanently try to apply in every situation, right? That's why the mind has these stock answers because it thinks it should have this permanent answer for every situation. I'm sorry for your loss. My condolences, right? I don't have a stock answer for these situations. I would just be like, oh, your mom passed away. That's unfortunate. She lived a good life though and you really had a good time with her and learned a lot from her, I'm sure, right? Like I would focus on those kind of things And I don't have a stock answer for that situation. I would have to be in the moment. I would have to observe the person's physical presence, their emotions. I would have to understand the tone of their voice. I would have to look at their word choices. You know, are they crying? You know, sometimes the best solution when someone tells you that they've lost their mother is just give them a hug, right? And maybe that's the right answer. But in another situation, that's not the right answer. So we have to really allow the mind to reside in the present moment. And you have to take in the information around you and don't feel like you have to give this generic stock vanilla answer. And if I give this generic stock vanilla answer, that shows that I care, right? And I know that people in our society, in Western society, expect to hear that stock answer. And if they don't hear that stock answer, Maybe somebody might be discontent, but there's lots of other ways of us to express loving kindness and compassion and our care without having that stock answer. And each individual moment is going to be very different. And you've got to live in the present moment, take in whatever is going on around you, and then just always come from a place of harmlessness, always come from a place of active goodwill for all beings without judgment, that loving kindness, 
always come from a place of compassion, which is concern for others' misfortune. Always use the five factors of well-spoken speech. And if you keep these things in mind, even if you want to go to equanimity, right? Keeping the mind calm, right? As long as you're practicing in this way, you're not causing any harm. So since you're not causing any harm, if the other person's mind becomes discontent and says, why did you hug me? Why didn't you say, I'm sorry for your loss? Well, you know that that's their craving, their expectation of wanting you to say, I'm sorry for your loss when you chose to give them a hug, right? And there was nothing wrong with what you did because you were practicing harmlessness. You were practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. You were practicing loving kindness, active goodwill without judgment. You were practicing compassion, right? Concern for others' misfortune. You were practicing equanimity. So as long as you're practicing these other things, then you know that you're showing care, right? So being unattached or practicing non-attachment doesn't mean non-care. This is a big misunderstanding in the Buddhist community. Some people, some practitioners think you can't love or you can't show care in order to practice non-attachment. What it means is that you don't allow your mind to go into these painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant feelings, that you don't have this mental longing with a strong eagerness and that you reside in the present moment, very loving, very kind, very compassionate, with harmlessness and practicing all the other steps on the Eightfold Path, which includes right speech. So you may appear as you're transitioning and you're getting comfortable with moving from this unenlightened mind to this enlightened mind. There might be a period of time in there where you're kind of challenged and you're kind of struggling with how to practice these teachings in a caring way. And you might come off to some people as, non-caring, but that's not enlightenment. An enlightened being is going to have care. They're going to have love. They're going to have kindness. They're going to have compassion. They're going to have politeness, respect, friendliness, gratitude, appreciation, but they're going to do all of that through a calm, stable, unshakable mind where you don't experience any discontentedness. So if if right now, if you're feeling kind of like non-caring and you're kind of detaching from other people's emotions and feelings, that's kind of normal that you'll feel odd because the mind is used to going into the sadness with them or your mind is used to going into the excited, elated feelings with them. Or if you're around someone who's lonely, you're kind of used to allowing the mind to be lonely with them. But that's because of your attachment to them. So you don't have to feel their feelings in order to have care. If someone else is sad, you don't have to feel sad in order to show compassion and to show loving kindness. And in fact, you'll be better off to maintain this middle way with the mind in the middle because it's like reaching out a hand and bringing them to the middle. Whereas if like someone's drowning in the deep end of the pool, one of the last things you wanna do is get into the deep end of the pool with them. 
you want to stand on the side of the pool and reach out a hand and bring them to stable ground. Or you want to put a stick and let them grab onto the stick and pull them to stable ground. So you don't want to go into the water with them and start drowning, i.e. you don't want to go into the sadness with them. So by you staying in this middle way, this middle ground, you can reach out a hand and maintain your present moment of mind, your singleness of mind, your loving kindness, your compassion, your harmlessness, and you can kind of bring them with you to that stable ground much more effectively. And you're maybe struggling with that right now because you're used to this old operating system where the mind goes into the sadness with them. And you might feel like you're not caring, but one of the most caring, compassionate things you can do is stand on stable ground, reach out a hand and bring them to you. Thank you, David. Those are some really interesting reflections. I think when someone is highly discontent and experiencing a lot of painful feelings, when we say sharing those feelings, it might provide this kind of temporary relief. And I think that's how these expectations come about. And as a society, we start to expect each other to dwell in each other's misfortune and also in each other's elation. Mm -hmm. And like you say, I think when you see this clearly, actually the most uncaring thing one can do arguably is to continue to endorse those attachments and continue to endorse those discontent states. If we really care and we have compassion, then the kindest thing we can do is actually to help them through it, but not continue helping them to develop those expectations. Yeah, you know, in the unenlightened mind, we think that the way to care is to feel the sadness with that person. But as you gain the wisdom of these teachings, you understand that the sadness is the problem that the craving, the desire, the attachment, that's the problem. And if you allow your mind to go there, you're just precipitating the problem. You're just putting gasoline on the fire. You're just stepping into the fire with them, right? No, you need to stay outside the fire so that you can bring them outside the fire. And you know that that's the most loving, kind, compassionate thing that you can do. And one of the things that's really nice is to be around people who are practicing these teachings really well. There's only so much that we can do over the internet and on online training like this. Actually coming to a place like Thailand and being in a retreat or being around millions of practitioners here in Thailand who are actually practicing the teachings and seeing what that feels like on a day-to-day -day basis. And you see the joy in people's faces and in their mind and you see how to practice these teachings right now if you're kind of like a lone practitioner the only one in your town or the only one in your household that's trying to kind of work your way through this it can be a little bit of a struggle because you can't really model these teachings and that's why the buddha said to have good companions good comrades good friends so by you coming to a place like thailand either for one of the retreats that i have or just on your own as a tourist and being around Thai people and observing how these teachings are practiced in daily life, you can model that and you can use that as a role model to help you practice. I see people who live in Thailand or people who visit Thailand, they always make much, much, much more progress than people who never come here. So in terms of the entire world, Thailand has 
the largest number of people practicing the Theravada teachings in any consolidated location. So there's 70 million people who live here in Thailand and 95% of them are practicing Theravada Buddhism. They may not be practicing to the level of being enlightened, but it's so ingrained in their culture that they're practicing things like politeness and kindness and friendliness and generosity and loving kindness and compassion. Not every single person, because that would be permanence, but the vast majority of the population is. So in terms of 95% of 70 million people, that's the largest population of Theravada Buddhist practitioners anywhere in the world. So if you came here, that would be really helpful as you advance in your practice to really kind of absorb and be around people who are practicing. So you can see a husband and a wife together and how they practice non-attachment, but still have love and care and compassion for each other. So that you can see a mother and a child together and how they practice non-attachment, but still have deep love, care, and compassion for each other. You can actually have more care. You can actually have more love when the craving, desire, and attachment is out of the way. Because when you get all that out of the way, then you're also getting rid of the anger, frustration, and irritation too. So this relationship of husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, children playing with each other, it can be even more deep with love, kindness, and compassion because there's no anger, there's no frustration, there's no irritation. So oftentimes seeing that, and if you can't make it to Thailand ever in your life, go to a community of Thai people where there's a temple. Thai temples are spread out all throughout the world now, and you could probably find one within driving distance to your house. Here in Thailand, they gather every day, but outside of Thailand, it's usually Saturday and Sunday because they're kind of on a Western schedule where they go to work from Monday to Friday. And then on Saturday and Sunday, they get together at the temple. Just go there. Don't have any expectations. Don't show up with any kind of requirements. Just show up and you'll see people will be so inviting, so loving, so kind, so friendly, so generous, and just blend into the community and say, I just came to see what you guys do here. I'm just interested to see what you do. I'm learning Buddhist teachings from this guy in Thailand and decided to come to your temple and see what you guys do here. They will help you. They will show you. Probably the first thing they're going to do is go feed you. <laughs> if, if, I, if I know Thai people, they're going to take you right into the kitchen of the temple and they're going to sit you down and give you some food. <laughs> so, uh, Go be around Thai people and see how these teachings are practiced. That's how I learned a lot, just by observing the Thai people and how they interact with each other in their interpersonal relationships. And you can see how non-attachment is practiced in a very loving, caring, compassionate way. I know, David, that you're planning a 10-day retreat in December. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about what you're planning? Yeah, if Thailand is open back up for tourists to come, then the first week of December starts on December 6th, and then it goes until September 16th. It's 10-day retreat, where we're going to do what's called an active retreat. Most retreats that you go to are what they call silent retreats, where you go there and it's completely silent. You get some instruction from the teachers, but 
you by and large can't use your electronic devices, you can't talk to other students, you can't do anything other than really listen to the teacher, read books and meditate for like 10 days. And for some people that goes really, really well. And for some people when they go home, this falls apart because you're in this kind of Petri dish, this wonderful environment where everyone's being polite and kind to each other and everything feels wonderful. And then you go home and it all falls apart, right? So then when you're at home, things are so wide open and there's so much going on that you don't really have time to focus on your own learning and training. So what I do is I host what's called an active retreat. So rather than being completely silent or completely wide open, what I do is kind of bring the retreat to the middle where there's three hours in the morning that we are learning and studying and not using electronic devices and meditating and doing things like this. And then in the daytime, we actually are doing activities and going outside to see certain tourist sites, go visit certain temples, go certain places and have activities so that we can take the teachings that we learned in the morning and we can apply them to everyday life. So if we learned about the Eightfold Path, practicing right intention, right speech, and right action, and all these things. Now, because we learned it in the retreat environment, now we take it out to a place in the environment in the world, and we start using it, and we start practicing it. And if you get a text message or a voicemail from home, and your partner, or your children, or your boss talks about how much they miss you, and they wish you were there, and that causes painful feelings, that's great. Bring that to the talk that we have in the morning. And we also have a talk in the evening where we do a Dhamma talk and meditation. Bring that in and say, hey, I just got this message from my children and they're missing me like crazy. And now I'm missing them too. I don't know how to let go of these sad feelings that I have. I would like you to get that message during the retreat. I would like that experience for you so that then right there in the moment, I can help you. Whereas if I do a silent retreat where you don't have any contact with the outside world at all, and you're in this Petri dish, then when you're at home, things can fall apart more easily. Whereas if we're together, essentially living in the same resort, you know, different bungalows and we're seeing each other in the morning and in the evenings and the daytime. You have plenty of interaction to observe these teachings and get help with like right away, like with the, the challenges that you have in the mind. And you have opportunity to apply the teachings with the public, but also with each other. So you'll be able to interact with the students as well. So we have training in the morning where there's a Dhamma talk and meditation. We have sound bath, gong meditation with Master V. We have daily activities where we go outside the retreat, observe the teachings and practice with Thai people. We have evening talks and meditation in the evening as well. We also have very good food all the way through. So from the moment that you arrive to the airport, until the moment that you go back to the airport, we make sure that you're taken care of. We pick you up at the airport and we drop you off at the airport. We provide all the lodging. We provide all the supplies, everything that you need. We provide all the food. We provide all the, the activities, all the transportation. 
And because I'm not interested in making money from this, the price for you is essentially just to cover the cost of the lodging, of the resort, of the food, of the transportation. So it's very, very low price for you to be able to come get this training because I'm not trying to profit from it. I'm just interested in helping you to learn and to grow as part of the retreat. And not only is there class time, but there's also one-on-one -on -one time where I make sure that I spend time with each student one-on-one -on -one in their retreat. I like to keep them kind of like fairly small, maybe like 10 people at the very most, maybe like 15 or 20 people. And if we get up to that number, then you know I'll make sure that there's other teachers like Master V or Max, if Max wants to come from the UK, twist his arm and get him to fly from the UK to Thailand. I know that's so hard. That would be very difficult. Oh, that's a big ass, Davis. <laughs> <laughs> so if you guys would like to um, find out more information, you can reach me privately or you can check the website, which is buddhadailywisdom.com. There's the 10 day retreat is on there from December 6th to the 16th. If for some reason Thailand isn't open for tourists by that time, then we'll just move the dates to somewhere in 2021. And I'll probably have, you know, three or four of these a year as we get going. And then eventually perhaps there'll be a center here in Thailand where I'll be teaching every single day and you could come and live for a month or two months or three months if you like. That's kind of like the goal is to build up to the point where there's actually a true residential program that you could come and live and learn these teachings long term if you like or short term just for five or ten days if you want sounds wonderful david well i i for one would certainly like to come out in december of course travel regulations permitting and my own circumstances permitting either way it's all good but uh, let's see what happens let's yeah see if we can make it out there i think december is a perfect time because it's going to be winter in a lot of places in the world and what better way to protect your contentedness than to fl fly to sunny <laughs> yeah fly to sunny thailand and be warm for the month of december if you want to stay and you can stay longer even though the retreats 10 days you know I, I teach seven days a week so if you wanted to come in a little bit early and get some private time together or if you want to stay a little bit later from the retreat and get some private time together there's places that you can rent all around my house in terms of like temporary places to stay, hotels or Airbnbs, places like that where students can come. And even if I'm not teaching a retreat and you would like to just come to Thailand for a few weeks or a few months, there's students who will travel here and they will get an Airbnb or they'll rent an apartment or something like this. And you can see me throughout the week or throughout the month and, and get training and kind of reside in Thailand for a while and kind of absorb these teachings through formal study and practice with me and me taking you out and going places but also just by being around Thai people and interacting with people in the community there's great opportunity for going to parks and tourist attractions and various things Thailand does tourism very very well they're very good at hospitality and taking care of people and it's very inexpensive because people aren't trying to make gobs and gobs of money. They're just making a little bit of money just to sustain their life. So 
for a very minimal budget, you can actually come here and experience a really good time and really dive into learning these teachings in a very deep way. You know, it's one thing to learn these teachings online, but it's a whole other thing to step into a Buddhist country and observe how these teachings play out on a day-to-day basis. Going to temples and seeing people interact with each other, you will see things and you will understand things completely different when you step into a Buddhist country and you see the love and the peacefulness and the kindness and the politeness and the respect amongst people. It's something that opened my eyes up really, really wide when I first came here in 2002. And I'm sure if you've never been to a Buddhist country like Thailand, it will open your eyes as well. Absolutely. Well, we have one more question, Dave, but I think it might be worth taking this one offline. Whatever questions haven't gotten asked yet, if you just type them into Facebook, then when I finish up here and I get online, I'll answer your questions online. Because one of the things we want to be aware of is not allowing these sessions to go too, too long, where, you know, three, four, five hours, I'm sure they could end up being if we had every single question come in. So if there's ever a time where we finish class and your question didn't get answered, I will answer it in Facebook if it's posted in there, either as an individual post or if it's a comment on this video, I will actually see it. So. I would just share with you guys to continue your meditation. Keep doing breathing mindfulness meditation every day, either once, twice, or three times a day. Continue to develop your practice deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you would like to start working with these doorways of discontentedness, you can. If it's something that is kind of like down the road for you and you wanna just postpone it and just kind of think of it as like, oh, that's interesting information, but I'm still working on the Four Noble Truths. That's fine. Uh, This particular talk is one that I haven't done before about the six doorways of discontentedness. So I felt like I was interested in getting that information out into the public so that people know that this is another area that you can explore. So if you're still working on understanding and applying the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths, then stay there. There's no reason to kind of move into this. This is kind of more of like an intermediate to advanced teaching. So wherever your practice is, then you apply time and effort there. But if there's people like Max and James and Amina, people who've been studying with me, Bill, others, uh, Randall, that have been studying for a while, and you're kind of absorbed the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the Three Poisons, the Five Precepts, you already kind of feel pretty good with that and you want to start working with these six doorways of discontentedness, then you go ahead and move forward with that. Okay, so you take your practice wherever it needs to go. It's an independent journey. I'm just the guide who's pointing the way and saying, this is the way to enlightenment. And you choose, you know, what is appropriate for you to focus on at any one given time. And then you engage me as you need help, either in these classes online or in a private discussion, a retreat, coming to Thailand, however you see is best for your independent journey. So thank you all for your dedication and your commitment to learning and practicing these teachings. As you learn and practice, you're gonna see that your mind just continues to improve. 
the quality of the mind is going to improve, the quality of your life is going to improve. And I just want to thank you for your dedication and commitment to learning and practicing these teachings because it's the very best thing that you could ever do for your life, for the life of those people around you, and for all of humanity. Because as you clean up your life practice and you cause less and less harm in the world, it's not only going to benefit you, it's going to benefit the people around you and all of humanity. So I know one of the things in our culture is people like to rush out and help everyone else first, putting everyone else first. But by putting yourself first and reprioritizing this, it's not selfish. By improving your life practice and cutting down the harm that you're causing in the world, that's one of the most loving, kind, compassionate things you could ever do. So by focusing on your own mind and developing your own life practice, by focusing on your own meditation training, you are helping yourself, but you're helping all the people around you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, all of those people. And because you're causing less harm to them, there's going to be less harm in the world. So keep working on this practice, keep learning, keep developing your life practice, keep meditating, and I'll see you on Sunday when we're going to talk about the Eightfold Path, which is your life practice. So another really important talk on Sunday. Thank you for joining. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.